It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So we find ourselves in a very, very desperate time in history. Uh, so if anyone's picking up on the podcast right here at this exact time, uh, to give a little context, we are uh, utilizing the life of Alfred the Great as a template to sort of understand our engagement uh, with both truth and the responsibilities we have that we've been entrusted, but also the encroaching evil that comes against us. And so when I was studying this time in history, I was seeing an incredible parallel with what we are dealing with uh, as a nation <clears throat> and the encroachment of evil ideology. We don't really have Vikings uh, hitting our shorelines. But we do have something very similar, and the same spirits that were a part of this invasion seem to be very similar to what we are dealing with today. And uh, to see how Alfred, this man who is entrusted with the crown, he's entrusted with the territorial responsibility as a king. First of all, it's so amazing that even he is even going to become king because he is uh, not in ready line uh, to be the king. His four older brothers all have to pass away before he turns 22 for this to all happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. His dad passes away and his four older brothers all uh, die. And lo and behold, he ends up with the job really no one wants uh, in a time of great desperation. So the Vikings up at this point, they came into the island in swarms in 865 AD. And they're going to take all the other kingdoms of Britannia at the time. And so they're East uh, Anglia, they're going to take Northumbria, they're going to take Mercia. And then Wessex, which is the territory that Alfred is over, is going to be the last stronghold. And they're going to resist and actually have a victory. There was a victory over the Vikings. It actually happened. And that was the Battle of Ashdown. And then everything is going to seem peaceful for a little bit because the Vikings seem distracted with the north and then they're going to come in Guthrum. Remember evil Guthrum? He's going to become a character as we progress. He is going to just sort of say, there is no way that this nation of Wessex is going to defy the Vikings. And so he is going to conspire how he can take them down. And so he tries and then gets the Danegeld uh, paid to him, and he, he leaves, and then he comes back with a surprise attack on the twelfth night, the celebration of Christmas in ancient Britannia, the twelfth day, and so everyone is uh, celebrating, and they take it, and that's, of course, the betrayal of warfare, where Alfred's trusted thane is going to turn over uh, Wiltshire to uh, Guthrum, and so Alfred is without any means of calling forth his men. And so he goes into hiding. And the last message we had on Friday was the Saxon Swamp Fortress. And so this little island called Athelney is going to be his home for a few months. And he's going to be living in a state of uh, tremendous difficulty where he has no resource, he has no food, and so he has a small band of men around him. And as Winston Churchill described it, he's like living as Robin Hood many centuries before Robin Hood even existed. And so that's sort of where we're going to pick up. This particular message is very, very dear to me because it touches on a theme that is very important to my own soul. My title for it is The Rise of the Man, and that's what's going to happen in this situation. You're always going to see and test and uh, approve sort of what makes someone tick by setting them in the most difficult circumstances and then watching them. And most of us don't really like the thought of that. It's like, you know, could God, could you just guess at how I tick? You don't need to actually set me in difficult circumstances to figure it out. But it's those difficult circumstances that actually prove something to us as well. There's one thing I know through the difficulties that I've walked through, and that is I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And I have turned to Jesus in the midst of those trials, and I've watched my soul do it. It has to choose. Am I going to go towards despair, or am I going to go towards faith? And it is a constant uh, challenge uh, in those times of great difficulty. Am I going to forsake that which is my calling, that which is clear to me, and choose an easier way? You see, there's an easier way for Alfred in this situation. And other kings have done it before him. He should feel no shame for doing it. And that is to get on a boat and go over to Europe and find covering in Rome. 
You see, Rome will protect any king that is an outlaw like this from the Vikings. And so he will have protection, he'll have wealth, he'll have prestige, even to his dying day, and then he'll have a really nice funeral. In other words, they'll treat him, he'll still be considered royalty, uh, because this was an unjust, pagan, heathen type of attack, right? And so there's a certain covering there, and it would, it would make sense for him to, in this situation, to do that. And yet, this is the proving ground. You know how many times I have wanted, I've, I've actually had it presented to my mind to flee and to run and to come up with a different... Leslie and I always joke about New Zealand. New Zealand is always the place that we would go, right? And we've even been invited to New Zealand multiple times. We still have a guy down there that invites us uh, down there. It's like, hey, you could have an extension of Ellerslie down here. It's like, hmm, we could just have Ellerslie down there. I mean, why do we even need to be here? And when you go through different challenges, it's interesting, those athony seasons in our life, how there is oftentimes a presentation from the devil to get out, to run, to flee. But we have to know where we are called and we have to fix ourselves there. And not in a coward's position, not in the fetal position. You guys know what the fetal position is? That's the ultimate symbol of weakness. Now, I mean, fetal position is actually pretty cute when it's a baby in the womb. That's the, 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 the curled up position with the, the thumb in the, in the mouth. That's, that's the fetal position. It's a position of weakness. And when you are cowering before a very strong enemy, oftentimes you will curl up into that same ball-like position. That's what the enemy wants to cow you into. And yet in those moments when you are having to make that decision, and you're feeling like you want to go into that position, into that fetal uh, role, to rise up and to defy and to say, I serve King Jesus. I am not one to be cowed. As Nehemiah says, uh, uh, you know, should such a man as I flee into the temple? Should such a man as I? In other words, do we recognize who we represent, who has set us free, that we are the children of the Most High God? And so that's, that's what you see in this title, The Rise of the Man. It's, it's like he's, he's a boy, he's a young guy, and he's doing his best. And then suddenly he's going to just be forged into a man in and through these couple months on the Isle of Athelney. Igniting the vision. So in, in this entire environment that you have stepped into, there is something that is going to cultivate this idea uh, deep down inside of me. I grew up as a, yes, as a man, but not with a vigorous vision for what that meant. And I don't even want to blame anyone for that. You know, part of it is just the inheritance of a culture which diminishes manhood. And if, if I, you know, you look back, because I'm 50 now, what would that, it'll put me at 20, so 30 years ago, and the vision for manhood was a lot bigger than it is now. <laughs> in other words, it was, even, but then it was so squelched, but now it's like an affront to even be a man. It's like offensive to declare you're a man. You, know, it's, you can identify as something else. Now we have options. Back then you just had the, you know, you were just a man. You had no choice. But now you can identify as a giraffe if you wanted. You know, you don't have to be a man. And so there's plenty of outs for you now. But it's, it's not easy to be the man now. The man is an affront, the man is an offense, the very fabric of our makeup is wrong. Now there's part of the reason why our culture is turned against the man is because of men. They have mishandled their role. And so for all, you know, I, I, if I was going to be honest with you, I totally understand where uh, feminism comes from. I understand it. It's just an incorrect response to an incorrect behavior. In other words, it's two wrongs that don't make a right. Feminism is, is, is not actually the spirit of God responding to the problem. However, there is a real problem, and that is men misusing their strength and harming women and putting women into a position of compromise. And as a result, the response to that is actually just and deserving, if you would say it that way. I would just prefer to solve manhood and solve femininity according to God's pattern, as opposed to this uh, war, which ultimately looks like it's going to take down masculinity. And masculinity is losing its growl with every passing day. But men were not built to misuse their strength. They were, used, they were intended to harness that strength 
for the glory of God. And so back in the day, I am going to encounter a book. So this is back somewhere around my 20s, okay? Like early 20s, could have been 20. I'm going to encounter a book called The Scottish Chiefs. The third chapter in that book is called Ellerslie, just to give you an idea. And in this book, I am going to see a man unlike I'd ever seen before. Now, what's interesting is I'd seen him before. His name is Jesus. But when I read the scriptures, I didn't quite see the manliness of Jesus. For whatever reason, that wasn't presented to me in church. So I didn't see the manliness of Jesus. And as a result, it almost, I almost needed like this other picture to show me Jesus. Because Jane Porter, who is the one who's going to write this book, and it was written in 1810, is going to portray William Wallace as perfect. This is in the Romantic era. So every, you know, the good guys are really good and the bad guys are really bad. And Wallace has long flowing, long blonde locks of hair. And the women swoon and faint, okay? It's a little awkward at times. However, because of her portrayal of Wallace, I'm going to see this paragon of virtue. I'm going to see, it's like the way a man ought to be. And you can see it's even a woman writing. She's like, "Mm -hmm, this is what a man ought to be like. And it's interesting, it's effect on me. Because I'm going to see something so much higher. I mean, if I was like aiming, it's like, oh, that that would be so high. This was like in the rafters. I never even thought of something like that. I read the book again afterwards. I was like so moved. Then I read it again. And I, I, I wrote down a, a list of attributes of Wallace that Wallace had. What made him so impressive to me? Because I was beholding something that I'd never seen before. And again, I did see it. I saw it in Jesus, but I never tied the two. I never connected manliness with Jesus. He's just God. You know, that's, that's, that's different. And so I didn't see it. I didn't see the pattern. And I was like, how do you get that? And so I wrote down this list of attributes, manly attributes that Wallace showed. And I remember measuring myself next to him. And I literally, out of a score of one to 10 on each one, I gave myself a zero on every single one but one. I don't even remember what the one was. And that one, I think I gave myself a one. In other words, I flunked the test. That's not even a flunk. That's like, it shouldn't even be in the same league with the piece of paper I was taking the test on. It's like, hey, I don't even belong in the room. I didn't have any of it, not even a flicker. This is something wholly foreign to my development. I didn't know what it was, but all I could say to God was, that's what I want. I want that even though I've never seen it, I've never smelled it, I've never touched it, tasted it, I don't know what this is, I must have it. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little clip out of that book. It's one of those moments that is defining in the storyline. Okay, so Wallace has escaped with his life out of... uh, out of England. So he was captured. He was in the, uh, in a very desperate situation. He gets out, he ends up in France. And so, but he's, he can't, he should just leave the Scots alone. Let them die, you know, if need be, because the, the elders and, and the nobles of Scotland have, have not done well for him. In other words, they're jealous of his his strength and of his capacity. He's been offered the crown multiple times. He will not take it. He says it belongs to Robert the Bruce. I will not take the crown. But he loves his country and he cares about it. So he comes back to Scotland, but if he's ever found in Scotland, he's a dead man. They'll kill him. But he comes back to Scotland dressed as a Frenchman. And he, has a, he, he always wears his visor down as a knight. And his name is Guy de Longville. It's a very interesting part of the storyline. And so he's a knight that's always behind his uh, visor, and so you can never see him, and uh, he's French. I don't remember if he talked. I can't remember now, but it's a very interesting thing. So why did he come back? To fight, to fight for the Scots, but to not fight under the name of Wallace, but to fight because he cares so, so deeply about his people, which was so intriguing to me. It's like, would I be willing to fight and lay down my life and not get any credit for it? That's what, you know, you start thinking it through. It's like, as a man... Boy, part of the reason you're willing to do something is because people will say, look at what he's doing. Instead, Wallace is willing to come back, lay down his life, and not even get credit for it so that he could fight for Scotland. 
I mean, it was moving. But I'm going to enter, we're going to enter into the scene. The, the Southrons, that's the name of the English, okay? So they're the, to the south. And so this is the Scots and the English. And Edward I is over the, the, the south, and he's a bad guy. So even though we're cheering on Great Britain in most of the storylines that I've been given, this is one you don't cheer him on, okay? This is one where you're for the Scots, okay? Just guys, remember that. So listen to this. This is from a chapter uh, called Roslyn. Indeed, so great was the havoc that the day must have ended in the universal destruction of every Scot in the field had not Wallace felt the crisis. And that is Guy de Longville. He shed his blood in vain. In vain his terrified countrymen saw him rush into the thickest of the carnage. In vain he called to them by all that was sacred to man to stand to the last. He was a foreigner, and they had no confidence in his exhortations. Death was before them, and they turned to fly. He's like, come, fight! And they're like, why would we fight with you? You're a French guy. You know, it's like, why would we lay down our life next to you? And so they're running from the field of battle. This is a terrible disaster that is taking place. This is a very, very important battle. The fate of his country hung on an instant. What's he to do? You see, if he exposes who he is, his men would come and fight. Because they, they will fight for Wallace. But if he exposes who he is, he's a dead man. So he has to choose. How is he going to spend his life. The fate of his country hung on an instant. The last rays of the setting sun shone full on the rocky promontory of the hill which projected over the field of combat. He took his resolution and spurring his steed up the steep ascent stood on the summit where he could be seen by the whole army. Then taking off his helmet, he waved it in the air and with a shout and having drawn all eyes upon him suddenly exclaimed, Scots, you have this day vanquished the Southrons twice. If you be men, remember Cambus Kenneth and follow William Wallace to a third victory. The cry which issued from the amazed troops was that of a people who beheld the angel of their deliverance. Wallace was the charge word of every heart. The hero's courage seemed instantaneously diffused through every breast, and with braced arms and determined spirits forming at once into the phalanx, his thundering voice dictated. The Southerns again felt the weight of the Scottish steel, and a battle ensued which made the bright esque run purple to the sea and covered the pastoral glades of Hawthornian with the bodies of its invaders. It's a very poetic and beautiful uh, book, but it is inspiring because it's constantly testing my soul on how I'm going to respond. It's just a very interesting experience. I highly recommend it. There's also a picture of femininity in that book with Lady Helen that is unmatched. I mean, it is marvelous. It is stunning. And so as a result, it's sort of going to begin something inside of Eric. It's going to ignite something like, I want that. So what is wanted is a man. Now this is a quote that is going to come out of, I think it was the year 1900. They're going to have a celebration at Stirling Castle, and they're going to honor William Wallace. So this is you know, 700 years after his life. They're going to honor, in fact, I think it's the 700th year anniversary. They're going to honor uh, William Wallace. And so this is from a speech given at Stirling Castle. And I tell you what, it just stirs me to no end. So this is Archibald Primrose. Can you imagine that name, having that name? And he was the Earl of Rosebery. Boy, that is like, talk about a poetic name. Here's what he said. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child, and the outcome of the storm. So... I'm not sure if any of you are stirred by something like that. And of course, some of the ladies in here are going, I don't know, should I be stirred by that? It's talking about a man. And yet, I capitalize the M on man so that you would catch what I would be bringing out. In other words, this is ultimately Jesus stepping onto the stage of time. What is wanted is the man. And ultimately, that's the same answer in every situation. Because when things get dire, what is wanted is the man. However, you know where the man is housed and how he does his business on this earth now? In these bodies. And so what is wanted is the man. Not treasures, 
Not fleets, not legions, but the man. And so as a result, in every Athelney situation in your life, every Rosalind situation in your life, where you face what looks like the end of something, it looks impossible. This is actually the proving point of every Christian where we, instead of curling up into the fetal position, rise up and trust our God. And there's something in that action that changes the world. You see, every moment of every day, you need to function in faith. Every moment and every day, we are living in faith. But there are moments that are more severe. There are moments with greater weightiness. And that's when all seems to be turning against you. All the circumstances around you seem to be heading over a cliff. That is the moment that you rise up and believe with vigor. That is the moment that the world around you is looking for some sense of hope and they need something to rally around. And sometimes all they have is a man or a woman of God who believes. I was just going through the book of Acts today and there's Paul and they're in that storm, remember the Fair Havens? And I mean, the boat is just rocked for 14 straight days. And you know what they started rallying around? Paul's faith. Paul promised them, not one of you is going to be lost. And so then it's like, hey, you can't cut, cut that lifeboat off. If anyone gets you know, off this boat, they die. And so they stay on. Well, what hope do they have? It's not in the storm, it's actually in one man's faith who's going to rise up in the midst of a tempest and believe as God. And that's the rise of the man. May 10th, 1941, what is wanted is a man. Now, I covered this, I, I want to say, even on Friday. But May 10th, 1941, in the same island, what is wanted is a man. And that man is Winston Churchill. He's going to step onto the stage of time in the darkest hour. It is the hardest of situations, just like we're going to see with Alfred here. But this is the same storyline. We could go through this storyline all throughout history, that when things go dark, you, you recognize that's when true Christianity is proven, true Christianity. And so here's Winston Churchill actually talking about May 10th. Fascinating quote. Thus, then on the night of the 10th of May, at the outset of this mighty battle, I acquired the chief power in the state, which henceforth I wielded an ever-growing measure for five years and three months of world war. At the end of which time, all our enemies having surrendered unconditionally or being about to do so, I was immediately dismissed by the British electorate from all further conduct of their affairs. You know that he was voted out once peace started to uh, work its way into the world? Everyone's like, oh, it looks like we won. And they vote Winston Churchill out. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a startling thing to see this guy that steps onto the stage of time has the medal of soul to be willing to stand up. And the moment they, they sense that they, there was peace coming, we don't want a wartime leader. He's, he's like built for war. That's the best way of describing Winston Churchill. He is built for the hardest moments. When you're in a hard moment, you want Winston Churchill. When it's an easy moment, you really don't want someone all that blustery. You, you know, could we get someone more of a peacetime uh, prime minister, you know, someone who will speak softer words? Uh, than all these, you know, you know, powerful and strong words of like, let's go get them. We don't need that now. Let's just not go get them now for a season. January 6, 878, what is wanted is a man. This nation has fallen. For all practical purposes, there's no hope left in the Isle of Britannia. There's no hope. It's gone. Guthrum has now seized the last stronghold. Wolfare's betrayal has literally turned over the power of Wessex to Guthrum. And for all practical purposes, Alfred should just accept that and leave. He has no military strength. He has no communication ability. It's not like he has a cell phone system or some kind of uh, communication system like uh, where he's able to send ham radio uh, signals. You know, what's, what's he supposed to do? He has nothing. And he's stuck on a little marshy island, two acres in size. He has no food, no provision, no soldiers, no weapons. He has nothing. His entire kingdom has been taken from him. What is a man to do? So in every situation, I wish I could draw a direct link with your soul to recognize that this is the essence of Christianity. It's these moments. And these moments do come. We don't really want these moments. It's not like we're cheering on these moments saying, God, could you bring a few more like this to me? 
However, this is the essence of what we are built for. We are built for these moments. The reason you are getting this truth now is for the harder moments up ahead. It's not just for the easy moments, it's for the harder moments. So that you will recollect and remember that which is true in the darkest points. He is king. He has a responsibility. He has an assignment to preserve this country, to preserve this territory with his very life. He has made a covenant bond with his thanes. And though he can't talk with his thanes, his life still is devoted to them. And he cannot leave them. So though he has nothing, and though he is going to go through the same type of emotional processing that we would, like despair, you know, like tremors and fear and like what's happening, you're going to see something stir inside of him. He's going to recollect, he's going to remember, he's going to gather himself to that which is true. So Dr. Merkel says, had Alfred wanted to, he could have easily withdrawn from Athelney to a shire where the resistance to the Viking occupation was more established. Hampshire or Dorset, these are within Wessex, these are shires in Wessex, seemed to be relatively untouched by the Viking invaders, and Alfred could have simply retreated to one of these royal estates, but the king refused to leave Somerset. Through his persistent raids on the unsuspecting Danes, he sought to remind Guthrum that the king of Wessex had not abandoned his nation. I'd like to read that last line again. He sought to remind Guthrum that the king of Wessex had not abandoned his station. I'm going to go back to that when we get a little later in this message because it's a key line. He also kept fresh in the minds of the people of Wessex that their king was soon to return ready to repay the faithful and the unfaithful accordingly. It's interesting because that's so similar to the kingdom of heaven. But he is literally going to be doing raids, and his goal is to try and communicate through the, you know, the communication, however you know, village people would talk to other village people and talk, say, Alfred's still out there. He's coming. He is going to regain his throne. But most of all, Alfred remained in Somerset because he insisted on staying as close to Guthrum as possible, shadowing all of his movements and observing his tactics. Alfred was studying his enemy, learning to hunt all over again. Don't you, don't you like this guy? Alfred and his men spent the first wintry months of 8878 at Athelney looking for opportunities to harass the Viking army as it attempted to occupy and consolidate power in its newly conquered territory. In small bands, the warriors of Wessex would creep out of the Somerset levels and seek Viking vulnerabilities. Where they encountered smaller parties of Danes, they attacked and slaughtered ruthlessly. Where they found larger Viking camps, they crept cautiously in under cover of darkness and quietly looted the camp of all its portable provisions. Those men of Wessex who had deserted their lord and pledged their allegiance to the pagan invaders also became targets of Alfred's frequent raids. So just imagine if you had betrayed Alfred and you sided with the Danes. Now, who do you want to win? Now you sort of want the Danes to win. You want Alfred to get out of town. Why? Because you have broken covenant. And so imagine what it felt like if you were one of the betrayers, uh, one of the nobles, the thanes that were loyal to Alfred but had turned to save your own skin. And now Alfred's like running around doing these raids, and boy, that would be a few gulps. Uh, Dr. Merkel continues, Alfred wanted to make it clear to the people of Wessex that the king of the nation had not abandoned his land. He was still the ring giver of Wessex, repaying his faithful thanes for their loyalty and punishing the traitors. Nearly all the great legends for which Alfred is still remembered refer to these months as Alfred wandered the wilds of Wessex, figuring out how to retake his kingdom. From, this, from his swampy refuge in Althony, Alfred communicated through his continued attacks on the Danish camps, as well as on the traitors of Wessex, his undying determination to resist the Viking occupation, promising that he would one day soon rise up and drive the Danes from the borders of Wessex. So this idea right here, the reason I'm very attracted to this story is because it says something that is hard to sometimes articulate in Christianity. And that is, he was, he was showing his undying determination to resist the Viking occupation. His undying determination to resist. There is something about the, the Christian life that says yes with an undying resolve to Jesus Christ, 
but says no with an undying resistance to the enemy. No, I will not go back to that. No, you will not take any territory back. No, this belongs to Jesus Christ now. There is a vigor of soul that I'm going to start giving definition to as we progress here that you're seeing in this, and it's very attractive to me. It brings me back to the days of Scottish chiefs. It brings me back to those beginning days of saying, manhood, what exactly is it? Lord Jesus, build it in me. That's what I want, right there. Dr. Merkel continues, the tales of Alfred's escapades comforted those who would remain loyal to the king throughout the occupation and discomforted those with Danish sympathies. As the legends of Alfred's resistance grew, they began to inspire other Wessex nobles to resist the Danish trespassers with greater resolve. One man begets another one. That's just the principle. When you live boldly for Jesus, your faith begets faith in others. Your boldness begets boldness in others. Your love begets love in others. It spreads like wildfire if you are willing to rise up in those dark moments, not going into the fetal position, but to rise up and defy it and to showcase the kingdom of heaven. That is what changes the world. So Leslie's prayer. Some of you may have heard this before, but it's worth repeating now. A key moment in my life is this, what I'm calling Leslie's prayer. So we're in the, uh, we called it the upper room, and uh, it was where we would, we, it was like a recording studio, we wrote our books up there, but we also prayed up there. And so when we were writing the book, uh, Wrestling Prayer, that was a season of, I don't remember how long it was, it was well over a year, we were praying an average of three hours a day. It was a very, very significant thing, which actually is going to lead to the beginnings of Ellerslie. And so we were up in the upper room, and we had sort of a pattern for how we did it, and this didn't fit the pattern, okay? I was like, had my eyes closed and I was pacing and I felt Leslie's hand suddenly come on my shoulder. I was like, what? Uh, and then she had her eyes closed. You know how you open your eyes, you're like, what's going on? And then she had her eyes closed and she prayed, Lord, make my man to pray like a man. I, I don't know exactly how many of you guys in here would be encouraged by that prayer because that infers something, and that is the way I had been praying wasn't like a man, okay? It's like, excuse me? And yet at the same time, I decided to amen the prayer because I agreed with it, but I just didn't know what she meant by that. And I had to acknowledge, and especially after what was about to happen, that I was praying, but I wasn't praying with manful vigor, with authority, with strength, with this sort of thing. It's more like being on the Isle of Athelney and saying, Lord, could you please solve these problems? Could you get Guthrum out? Could you just somehow fix this? I'm still praying, but it's very different than saying, let's get the men together and let's go take Guthrum out. Very different. It's an attitude of manliness that says, this is, in our case, Christ's kingdom. And he is going. You see, it's an attitude that is defiant towards evil, and it knows the victory of the cross, it knows the serpent's head is crushed, and it does not take no for an answer from the enemy. It's like, you're going. Did you hear me, enemy? You're going. In the authority of Christ Jesus, I am mounting my campaign against you. And that's what you see in Alfred, which is very attractive to me as a man. And this is all starting right in this time period, okay? When Leslie praise that for me. About 30 seconds later, I am going to utter a prayer that if I could try and create some kind of wind force to it, it's like when it came out of my, my mouth, it's like blowing me backwards. It was so powerful. And I felt something different begin to flow through me. It was an authority. It was a command. It was recognizing something. It's like all I did was agree with a prayer. Lord, make my man to pray like a man. Well, we sort of need that in every area of our life. Lord, cause us to live, I know it's going to sound funny for all the ladies in here, like men, but what, you see, that actually matches with Scripture. I know that sounds strange, but that's why I'm teaching this message. So manful living. Now, I'm going to give you uh, some Greek words to give you a little understanding of what that is. Ensuring the Andrea remains in the Andrizomai. Okay, that makes sense to you, doesn't it? So let me give you a couple Greek words here. 
Andrea. Now, I know that many of you think that that's a girl's name. If you look up the name Andrea, you know that it, what it means? Manful. <laughs> Manly. <laughs> Chock full of manliness. So, <laughs> I know, it's a little strange. Now, so when you hear the word Andre, like Andre the Giant, okay, that, that fits a little better in our mind. But this is actually a, a key concept in the Greek. And like for all Greek warriors through history, this is the number one virtue in all of manhood was Andrea. This was what caused men to go into battle and to fight face to face with weaponry. In fact, when the catapult was invented, which caused you to be able to hurt someone from a distance, uh, King Aegis wept openly because he said, basically, this is no more. How could you have manfulness anymore when you can kill someone from a distance? You see, because the toughest thing about being a man is you have to go right into the, what they call the man-killing spears, which we're seeing the shield wall. That's like where the man is proven. You see, a man is the only one, hey, man, that's, that's, that's Andrea right there. He's willing to be front lines behind the shield uh, and, and press his life, and he can't move from that position. He has to stay until this battle is over. That's Andrea. And so this word is going to be the root word for something bigger that we're going to see Paul use in the New Testament. So Paul is actually going to use this Greek word. And he's, he has, uh, oh, there it is, andridzomai. And what it translates to is doing what a man does. So it's interesting because we know what that is, don't we? I don't know if we do anymore. I think we've lost the idea of andridzomai. So when you say it, like, hey, andridzomai, do what a man does. You're like, what is that? Like, go to work uh, in a suit and maybe some nice polished shoes? I mean, what, what does a man do? Carry a briefcase? That was what I grew up with. Okay, I grew up with the suit, the tie, the briefcase. Uh, you supply, you provide for your home. That's what a man does. Instead of recognizing, no, a man stands vigorously against evil. A man stands for something, too, for the weak, the lowly. He will stand and be a barrier for everything that is feminine so that nothing will touch it and make it impure. It's like, whoa, what's that? I'm not used to that. And so I remember my mental picture that I was cultivating back then. You know, of, I, I remember teaching my kids this. Okay, the big meanie, we used to call the devil the big meanie. The big meanie comes to the Ludi house and goes, kink, 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 kink. hey, I want to come in and hurt someone. Well, what should daddy do? What does the man do? What is andridzomai in that situation? To shove Leslie out and go, uh, honey, could you answer the door? I'm going to take the kids. We're going to hide in the basement. And intrinsically, we all know that that's not what the man does. The man doesn't hide. The man may have his knees knocking, but the man greets it at the door. The man, even though he might be you know, one-fourth the size of whatever is out there, he is still the one to protect his house. And so as a result, I don't put my kids out there. I don't put Leslie out there. The man is the one that greets the challenge. And he is built to do it. And so we are to do what men ought to do. But what's interesting is in the New Testament, you're going to see Paul say this to the entire church. (laughs) He's basically going to say, do what the man would do. And so the way that we can look at that as the church is we do as Christ would do. There is a role, there is something that Christ would do. There is something that he has. He has an authoritative position. He is seated on high in heavenly places. And it is very, very significant for us to recognize that. You see, as long as we are in these bodies, we have roles, like manly roles and feminine roles. And one of the amazing things for a woman to do is to allow the man to be the man. That's actually a hard thing for some women to do, to allow the man to be the man and not usurp his position and say, no, honey, uh, <laughs> You know, look, I can handle this better than you can. But to actually back up and give him the space to be the man. Okay, that's part of how we play out the kingdom of heaven here. But all of us are called to showcase the man. Just like all of us in here are called the bride of Christ, yet we're all supposed to showcase the man. I mean, figure that one out, right? So here it is, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. I'm going to give you four different translations of it. This first one's NASB. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong. 
Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit ye like men, be strong. Watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Be brave. Come on. Be brave? I mean, we have, the word man has to be in there, so that's why I gave all these other translations. That one made me mad. Uh, ESV, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Isn't that great? I can understand why we translate it to be brave, because then you know, women can sort of feel like they can adopt it. It's like, yes, I can be brave. However, I want this to linger, to recognize that the man has come and set a pattern. And he says, follow me. And he wasn't just talking to the men. In other words, all of us as the body of Christ are being asked to follow the man. There is a pattern that he has set. And this is what is wanted right now. What is wanted is the man. Now, we as men in this room have a role to play to lead the church of Jesus Christ. And to not like shrink back and say, hey, ladies, could you take that up? In other words, our job is to lead in this. But every single one of us in here needs to be inhabited by the man and needs to enable that man to be seen in and through our life. Manful. What exactly does that mean? So let me give you at least some starter concepts here. To exert. You see, there's something about passing that we naturally default to. Okay, so something starts coming against us and it's like, hey, what's the easiest way out of this situation? A man is a natural fighter, okay? He, he, he has a problem oftentimes because he'll fight, right? And what God wants is he wants to take that fight but direct it properly, not in a firstborn sense to self-protect but to God-protect, and to exert on behalf of God. To be sort of like the armor bearer for God. God, what do you want to do now? Hey, God, I'm willing to fight for you. What, what do you want to do? And sometimes he says, hey, just be still. But sometimes he says, go get him. And for us, we take our cue, we take our lead from our commander. And yet we are ready, like lions fretting in cages, ready to leap forth and to do his work and to exert and so at every turn, and I, I have these situations every day, there are things in my life that I need to stand against. They're just there. I mean, everywhere I turn in this world, there are things that I need to repulse as a man. And it is, it's hard. Because I would rather be passive. It's like, God, can I be passive on this one? Do I really need to fight that? Yes. And so it, it's the exertion. Be manful, Eric. Don't set down your weapons. If you guys, it, it, some of you are parents, but if you're not parent, you can imagine probably. And that is your children need discipline. And when you're, when you're getting engaged and married, you, you, know, you read your books and then you're pregnant, you're like, okay, we're going to do this right. And so you say, okay, we're going to discipline our child consistently. You read that in a book. That's important. A lot of parents don't uh, discipline consistently. And if you discipline inconsistently, it's ineffective discipline. It doesn't work. And it seems random uh, to a child. But a child is trained through consistency. And yet to be consistent, whoo, it, it is hard, guys. It just is. And there are those moments like, come on, I just want to go to bed. The last thing I want to do before I go to bed is have to discipline my child to be consistent right? It's like, let's just let that one pass. And there's a few young kids in here like, yes, I think we should let that one pass. And yet, as a parent, it is critical to rise up and exert in those moments. And that's being manful. To exert against evil. So not just for God, but against evil. And then to preserve that which is true and right. To stand aggressively on behalf of the vulnerable to stand aggressively against that which Christ defeated on the cross, i.e. sin, death, darkness, the flesh. See, there's things that are already condemned, they're already judged, and you cannot allow them any voice in your life. You cannot allow them any voice in your marriage. You cannot allow them any voice in your family. If you're over a church, you cannot allow them any voice in your church. If you're over a ministry, you cannot allow them any voice in your ministry. Oh, boy, it sounds tiring, doesn't it? It'd be a lot easier for Alfred if he just took a break. You know, let Guthrum rule for a while. You know, just sort of lick your wounds, heal up for a bit. He can't do it. He's a man. He has a job to do. 
And so these two months, he is laboring to solve the Rubik's Cube. How do I get this kingdom back? God, show me. And it's a pretty extraordinary story. Isn't it funny? I keep baiting you for like this. It's like, how long have we been on the Isle of Athelney? It seems like, Eric, you're really milking the Isle of Athelney. Well, yeah. So this one line, Dr. Benjamin Merkel says it this way. Alfred wanted to make it clear to the people of Wessex that the king of the nation had not abandoned his land. You see, you've been given a territory, a land, and God says, that body of yours, that thought life of yours, that sexuality of yours, that appetite of yours, I've entrusted it to you under my authority. So we're, in a sense, in a similar situation where the devil's bullying us around. Guthrum's coming to town. What are we going to do? Sit back on our haunches, go into fetal position, go, well, but it's a Viking. I mean, they're so powerful. Don't you realize who you serve? Don't you realize that you serve the king of all kings? And there is no Guthrum that can come into this territory and bully you around. Be manful. Stick the Andrea back in the Andrizomai. Stick the manfulness back in your behavior. Do it as Christ would do it. Get the growl on. Lord Jesus, cause this troop of students to begin to behave as the man would. What territory are you responsible for? Are you making it clear who is, capital B, boss? In your sexuality, is Guthrum pushing you around? Hey, you make it clear who is, capital B, boss. His name is Jesus Christ. He purchased this body with his blood. It belongs to him. You have to get the growl on. You can't be pushed around and shoved around by the devil in these points. That thought life, it does not belong to the devil. It belongs to King Jesus. This is the mind of Christ now. This is territory that is his, bought and paid for. Now he says, exert. What are you doing? What are you doing on the island of Athelney? Go! Take it back in the authority of my name. Your appetites, they don't rule you. You rule them in the authority of Christ Jesus. As Paul says, bring your body into subjection. Guthrum will not remain. So here's a, uh, three different starter packages. Every last cell within your body needs to know who the boss is around here. That's, that's what I do a lot. Lord, every cell in my body, I want it to bend its knee and declare that you are Lord. Not just my mind, but every cell. This body's yours, and I am ready, as a man, to attend to your purposes in it. And that's why I'm constantly pushing away anything that would try and compromise my ability to stand for Jesus. Every single thought that comes in through the doorway of the mind needs to know who is king in this territory. Every single emotion, every single longing, every single dream, and every single ambition needs to know who is most important around here. So any thought, any dream, any desire that comes in, it's like, hey, guys, you do know Jesus rules here. Your job is to enforce that reality. The Spirit of God will give you all the equipment you need to do it. But we need the rise of the man. What is wanted in your body is the man. What is wanted in the church of Jesus Christ today is the man. What is wanted in the world today, whether they realize it or not, is the man. Our job is to agree with God's statement on who that man is and what that man has done, and then walk in accordance with it. The reasoning of the man, yes, it's difficult right now, yes, it may appear impossible, but what does my God have to say about it? This is a great meditation to finish with. I just call it these manly scriptures. All things are underneath the feet of my Redeemer, Ephesians 1.22. The Messiah has come and has crushed the head of the serpent and has declared it is finished, John 19.30. And if God is for me, who can stand against me, Romans 8.31. For greater is he who is in me than he who is in this world, 1 John 4.4. 4. My spiritual weaponry is mighty, the pulling down of enemy strongholds, 2 Corinthians 10.3-4. If I submit to God and resist the devil, the devil will flee, James 4.7. 
The shield of faith repels all the fiery darts of the evil one, Ephesians 6.16. He is my refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, Psalm 46.1. For my God surrounds me with favors with a shield, Psalm 5.12. And though a thousand may fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, it will not come near me, Psalm 91.7. No weapon formed against me shall prosper, Isaiah 54.17. I have been given power over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt me, Luke 10.19. My enemies may intend to harm me, but God means all things for good, that he may deliver many. Genesis 50, 20. No one who hopes in him will be ashamed. Psalm 34, 22. And he has said he will never leave me nor forsake me. Hebrews 13, 5. No grave trouble will overtake me. Proverbs 12, 21. I will not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Psalm 118, 17. I will have an abundance for every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84, 11. He has said, I am strong, and the word of God abides in me, and I have overcome the wicked one, 1 John 2.14. He who spared not his own son, will he not freely give me all things, Romans 8.32. He who has begun a good work in me will bring it to completion, Philippians 1.6. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers me out of them all, Psalm 34.19. I shall be like a stream of water whose waters fail not. He knows the plans he has for me, plans to prosper and not harm, Jeremiah 29.11. As I make the Lord my focus, I shall be like a tree planted by streams of water which brings forth its fruit in season. Its leaf also does not wither, Psalm 1.3. Those who rise up against me will fall before me in judgment, Isaiah 54.17. Father, I pray that you would make us to growl with the manly growl to exert this authority that you've given us, to not take Guthrum's invasion sitting down. Lord, may we pull the thumb out of our mouth and stop sucking on it. Lord, we have a job to do. And I pray that we in the power of the Holy Spirit would stand up and do it. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.